That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Edit audio. The thing that consistently frustrates me is how enormous and how ongoing of a problem it is that people are having really harmful tattooing experiences because I hear about it every single time I tattoo somebody and I'm sure you do too. And it's not just old school men. It's new people too. 100%. It's it's new people too. And so that's the wall that I feel like I run into like emotionally and mentally. I feel really tired and I feel like what more could I give? (laughs) That's how I've been feeling lately. Like what more could I give? What's up, y'all? Welcome to season two of The Teardown, a podcast hosted by me, Vegas Inc., hopefully still your favorite polarizing tattooer. Every episode, I sit down and chat with amazing guest artists, and we dive in more intimately on the politics of the tattoo industry, as well as some topics I feel are more relevant in contemporary tattooing. So now that we're all set up, let's get started. Are you ready? Tamara Santibanez is an interdisciplinary artist and oral historian living and working in Brooklyn. Their work is rooted in storytelling and the visual language of identity construction, exploring subcultural semiotics and the meanings we make from bodily adornment. They approach the body as a site for archiving and accessing personal and collective narratives and view tattooing as a political intervention. As a queer and trans artist, their practice memorializes the language and resistance strategies used by othered, populations to build alternative worlds. That is a mouthful and the most incredible (laughs) bio I've ever heard for a tattoo artist. Did you, is that you? You wrote that? (laughs) Yeah, that's me. As I'm hearing you read it, I'm like, maybe that wasn't the right bio for this space. I just copied and pasted what was on my website, but it is funny that it doesn't say tattooing until like the fourth sentence. Um, no, it's so good. It's succinct and explains like you're, it's like you're an artist. I mean, <laughs> to be fair, my bio, the one that I use all the time, it's like all this other work that I do other than tattooing. And then at the bottom, yeah. it's like, oh yeah, I've also been tattooing for this long. Book with me. Well, I find that you have to order it that way because people get really derailed. Like they just stop listening at tattooing. I don't know if you've experienced that too. Yeah. And then tattooing is the only thing they want to talk about. I mean, tattooing's the thing I always want to talk about. I always want to talk about it with other tattoo artists, not necessarily with like civilians, I guess, <laughs> because the conversation's always so different, I feel like. Yeah, that's true. I went to get tattooed yesterday, starting with like a leg cover up. And I like brought my laptop. I had like brought my iPad. I'm like, I'm just going to get a bunch of work done. Like, you know, I didn't get 
a single lick of work done. We were just talking the whole time about tattoos, just like me, the artist that was tattooing me, Evan Miller, and then another artist, Kai. And we were just like shooting the shit, you you know, so and such from this, uh, you know, tattooing in China and this. And it's like, what the hell? Like eight hours of just talking about it. Sober, actually, too. (laughs) That's a long time to be getting tattooed also and maintaining a conversation. You had mentioned earlier that you're at um, an art residency, right? Yeah, in Miami right now. Can you tell me a bit about that? Like, I don't know anything about the art world in that way. Yeah, it's kind of a new thing that I'm doing a little bit more of. I've done a couple of residencies. I did one in that was in New York that was local to me in like 2019. That was my first big one. And then... Then the pandemic happened and then I went to grad school and a lot of things you can't apply for while you're currently in a, you know, a degree program. So once I finished, I applied for a bunch of things. And so I did a couple of residencies last summer and now I'm here in Miami and I really like them just because they give you really focused time away from your, you know, quote unquote, regular life and regular schedule to just focus on making work and have some spaciousness to think. And that's what I've been finding myself needing a lot of lately. I often feel like a tattooer first and like an artist second. And I feel like I've lost that like creative edge or the desire or passion to create because it's been like monetized to such a degree via tattooing. Like I'm drawing to get paid. And so it's a lot of custom work for like what other people want. And I guess I could, you know, with my spin on it. Yeah. I don't feel as passionate about creating, or I don't have like time outside of what I'm getting paid to do to create art. To me, it comes down to the difference between commissioned work and sort of commercially hireable work because tattooing is just collaborative by nature. Even if you're doing flash on people, that's not to say that the art world is any more pure or less commercial than tattooing necessarily because it's a job like any other job. But I do find it to be really different to just make the things that I want to make and be able to think through the things that I want to think without having a second person involved. That to me is the biggest difference. I'm sure there's people who manage to navigate this really ethically and gracefully, but the whole idea of like, it's my art and my clients are wearing my art I don't really love, I don't think it always leaves a lot of room for, for them. You know, it's verging on the ink master human canvas uh, Mm, (laughs) perspective in a way that I try to just stay away from and be like, I'm available as a tattoo artist to collaborate with you for your ultimate goals. And my visual art practice, my studio practice is the place where I get to be free to make those choices on my own. So interesting. You mentioned that, like, I feel like I've had this sort of conversation or like this, this thought process about how, like, what are the ethics of tattooing? Right. I struggle with like particular art styles being so prominent right now that are not foundationally well done that don't take into consideration how people age, like how um, folks might feel in the future. Like I'm like wondering what sort of conversations like certain artists are having with their client about like how they might feel about it in the future. And it's like the conversation kind of ends up being like, or the narrative is like, well, I'm an artist. This is my art and they're wearing it. And like people come and they sign a consent form. It's their bodies. They get to do what they want with it. And it's like, yeah, totally. People are allowed to do what they want with their bodies. But like, that's where I, for me, that's like informed consent. Like 
totally. fully educating the client on like all the potentials of how somebody might feel in the future. Like I've been tattooing 11 years now. So I have seen my clients from the first year to like, I'm still tattooing them now. Right. And so I've seen how things have aged. I've seen how people change. And so the conversations I have are, are like, keep those things in mind. You know, I saw a tattoo done recently. A client came in with a piece and I was like, oh, how old is that? Like two years? They were like three months. <laughs> and so the t- the timeline of like when we're seeing those effects is is pretty short. Like I think we're already starting to see, I'm already starting to have people come in and be like, yeah, so much of this line work has already fallen out or so much of this has already blown and spread or collapsed into itself, these tiny details. So I think enough time has passed that people are starting to see the repercussions of that and are going to need to adjust accordingly. And I'm all for trying things. You know, I come from a really DIY tattoo background. And so to a point, I'm like, yeah, it's, I was a punk. I'm, it's fun to like do fucked up tattoos if that's what everyone is understanding that you're doing. I like seeing experimentation and I like seeing people try new things because that is how innovation happens. And that is how expansion of a style happens. But I agree with you that a lot of those fundamentals aren't there and some people aren't necessarily understanding or anticipating that as clients. And, you know, I write this with this tattoo newsletter and I did like a 2023 prediction for the year ahead. And I was like, I predict that a return to fundamentals is going to be coming. Like, I think it's been long enough since some of those, since some people got some of these tattoos that aren't really applied with an eye towards longevity. Yeah. You know what style comes to mind for me? Which is not, it's not a controversial take. (laughs) Ignorant style tattooing. Okay. I went through a major like process with like expanding my understanding of like what could be considered tattoo art. So at one point there was tattoo art and artists that I follow now that I would never have. And I'd be like, this is not real tattooing. This is trash. This is da da da. And like all these things. And then I was like, okay, chill. Let me just like actually absorb it. And I started to build relationships with artists that were doing things that I wouldn't necessarily have liked in the past and then started to appreciate it a lot. And like, I think also being able to appreciate them and like their process and, you know, being like, okay, it's not for me. But I really, I like it. And then ultimately, I actually ended up getting tattooed in those sort of styles. However, I personally feel like ignorance style was developed so that mediocre white people could get into the industry and ha- and like just created like a subculture to where they could just like do bad tattoos, like snake pit adjacent tattoos. And I'm not talking about like art that's like, weird or different or abstract I'm talking like ignorant style and that like it's scratchy yeah 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 you know what I mean like I saw there was an artist that like did a full back piece on somebody right and this is like seemingly like a young person a full back piece of just scratchy art of tattoos that most of it fell out they charged about two thousand dollars for it and this person had only been tattooing for a year I'm like back wow. piece one year, two thousand dollars. That's wild. I do not understand the metrics of how tattoo pricing is happening right now. But that's a whole separate topic. <laughs> I don't know. I agree with you. I think there's a there's a visible difference to me between someone who has a unique drawing style and is thinking about application, and somebody who's not even trying to to consider what's good application. At least just like get it in, at least let the line be solid, at least like have an understanding of like line weight or like what you're trying to achieve. Like, you know, sometimes I wish that like 
I'd have an opportunity to talk to some of these folks or like have a relationship and be like, okay, what is it that you're trying to portray? Like, what is it that you're trying to do? All right. So this is how you can apply that. Like, this is going to give it longevity or like, even with how you draw, like you're drawing for paper, you're drawing for how you would sketch, but are you drawing as like a tattoo? And I think you know the difference, right? Like how you would draw or paint something cannot always be translated into a tattoo for what you were saying, longevity. In in a lot of ways, I do think that that's kind of the basic fundamental that we owe our client is to think about the life of the tattoo because it's their life. And if one of those artists that's doing those some of those pieces was like, no, this is like a collaboration between my and my client. It's about entropy and decay and the impermanence of the body. And we're applying this purposely to like a, you know, a more shallow layer of skin so that we can see how it becomes invisible over time. I would be like, great. Sure. That's a great reason. Like, I understand your purpose, but I just don't think that people are being that intentional or thoughtful about it. And thinking about someone's life is part of our job. I love that was such like an art, like art student thing that you said. You know what I mean? It can be like, if there's intention behind it, I'll buy it. Like, if you're thinking deeply and critically about why you're doing the thing that you're doing, sure. It can look like anything. And I'm like, okay, fair enough. But I don't know that people are necessarily. And, And I think you're right. Like, if you or I had been doing tattoos in that way when we started getting into the industry, absolutely not. You know, there was no space for that. No. I mean, like, the era in which we came into the industry was far more rigid and not as easy for like folks who are like femme adjacent and racialized and the bar was set so high it was unreachable in a a lot of ways unless you worked super hard and and made a lot of compromises with all that being said i'd like to get into some questions (laughs) yeah yeah so how would you describe your journey as an artist Yeah, I I would say I think what I've come to understand in retrospect as I look back over the years is that craft has always been a through line and a backbone into things that I make, you know, like the craft and handmade. When I was way younger, I was really interested in fashion and I quickly realized I wasn't interested in design for production, but I was interested in handmade processes and like fiber arts and textiles and things that had a history and a human hand behind them. Because I went to a lot of different art schools, I really believed that college was for everyone and you just had to like to find the right fit and that that was important, important thing to do. And, and so I transferred around a lot because I really hated a lot of what I was trying. And, but I ended up in a printmaking program here in New York. And that's what I eventually got my degree in after like six years of undergrad. So printmaking felt like a light bulb moment because it is so tactile and you know, you have to like carve a piece of wood to make an image or like grind a stone to make an image. And something about that was so rewarding. The surfaces were so satisfying to work with. It felt so unlike drawing directly on paper, which I've always kind of struggled to produce images in that way for some reason. I was always interested in tattooing alongside that, just from seeing it being done and being like, this is so intriguing. How is this done? I really want to understand it. Uh, It seems like magic. I can't understand how the person knows what they're doing. And I want to know. And so that mystery really attracted me, but I was working in these other craft mediums. So I think that that's always been 
something that drives and informs the mediums that I want to work in. And all of those processes too have a lot of overlapping histories and like radical histories, in my opinion, you know, printmaking being this really democratic medium that you can do in this really DIY way. And it was really used to challenge authority and like knowledge and power hoarding and information hoarding and making the printed word accessible to the masses. And same with image reproduction. And I see tattooing as having so many parallels to that where you can spend a lot of time becoming a master tattooer or following these really traditional paths of learning, but you can also tattoo in this really DIY way that's really immediate and can challenge a lot of things. And I also work in a lot of other craft mediums like leather tooling, ceramics. I do a lot of oil painting and I like being able to go between those just to sort of follow what an idea needs to be and how it needs to be materialized. But tattooing, I mean, those things to me all are all in conversation with each other. It's like leather tooling is like printmaking is like tattooing is like ceramics in so many ways. After finishing school, how long until you got into like tattooing? So I had started tattooing just on my own in my house. Self-taught? Fully scratcher. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm a scratcher too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I love that people are really reclaiming that word now. It's so funny. Um, But yeah, I started in my house fully in like a punk house with a tattoo machine I bought from Unimax. But I really was invested. My long view really was like professional shop, traditional experience. And I I really wanted an apprenticeship, but I was still in school. And so I was like painting flash and getting tattoos and trying to do those kinds of tattoos on my friends. And I ended up getting offered a job at Three Kings Tattoo. And that was while I was still in school. So I think my last semester of college, I was tattooing a couple of days a week, finishing school. And then once I graduated, I started working there full time. So I pretty much went straight from school to tattooing. And how long have you been tattooing now? It's been about 15 years, 15, 16 years. So yeah, you definitely got some more time on <laughs> more time than me. You know, like I said, I was self-taught too. And I didn't even think of like tattooing as like a career path at all. I had like been doing art since I was young. I don't know if that's like a real thing. I'm like, doesn't everybody do art since they're young? But whatever, <laughs> you know, and then I um, fell onto like some pretty precarious times and like was unable to really engage in art the way that I would have liked to. And once I had found like a sort of stability in housing, I started to draw again and I was getting tattooed pretty young. I got my first tattoo when I was like 14, 15. And I like, it was a rose on my neck. Okay. Yeah. It's hard. (laughs) I was like, I walked into the studio and was like, I'd like a tattoo. And I told them what I I wanted. They're like, well, you're going to need parental signature. And I'm like, well, I live in a group home, so I don't have any parents. And they were like, okay. (laughs) It's really (laughs) uncomfortable. And I was like, work. And I just had like my friend who was like 18 at the time sign for me. Wow. But yeah. And it was a studio that I actually like frequented often. I don't know. I guess like as I was like meeting other artists and I started to draw more, I was like pretty, I was encouraged by them to like get into it. And I was like, well, what do I do? And they were like, you could just teach yourself. I'm like, what? So that's how I like got into it. And I just like dedicated so much. Like at first I kind of was fucking around and then I just like realized like how important it was for me. And it really, 
helped me not get into like trouble. You know, like I was like running road. I was being a freaking street kid. And then I'm like, okay, well, I can't run road because I have an appointment tomorrow and I have to draw for it. And I was tattooing (laughs) in kitchens and in the hood and doing a lot of prayer hands, a lot of script prayers and like, you know, just things that I was just really excited about it. And I just wanted to get good enough to get into a shop so that I could continue that learning and actually like become a solid tattooer. Like it became a goal, a a freaking reason to live basically. And I always say that like tattooing like saved my life. Like I wouldn't be in a much different situation had I not come across it. And I have so much love and care and respect for it as a practice, as an industry, as an institution, and which is like why I even like apply so much of my my own principles, political principles and ethical ones to it, because I believe in its growth and its ability to grow and and be different from like what it has been or what it got stolen and colonized and then turned into <laughs> essentially. Yeah, totally. Like, I think I hit an impasse where. OK, so I guess rewind the pandemic was the first time I had ever not tattooed for that long. I had never had more than two weeks away from tattooing at a time for, you know, however long that was at the time, 13 years, 14 years. And having four months of not tattooing really shifted things for me. And going to grad school was the first time that I had really put something else as central in my life. Because even though I was making art and doing all these other things, tattooing was always central. And I was making everything else work around tattooing. And yeah, I went to school and I think I just had this realization where I had to admit to myself that I had never put my art practice first and I had never put writing first and I had never done those those things as the central thing in my life. And that's what I'm trying now. And it feels funny to say that it's new, it's brand new. But even though that's where I'm at, I'm still tattooing every week, you know, and I, and tattooing is the glue that holds it all together. You know, I wouldn't be able to afford to do anything, anything that I'm doing if I wasn't tattooing and I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't have the connections and the community and the security in that support that I would and the audience that I do if it weren't for tattooing. And I think most tattooers, I would hope that most tattooers feel the same way that tattooing has given them so much. And part of, for me, the principle is to give back to it. So what was like your first tattoo experience like? Like when you got your first tattoo, whether you said punk. So I'm like, okay, so maybe your first experience was in a a crib somewhere. (laughs) Like, I'd like to hear the first experience, like whatever that was. And then maybe even your first shop experience. I definitely had homemade tattoos, like hand hand poke, second poke tattoos done in houses with friends or on myself. But still have them or did you cover them up? I think I still have most of them, to be yeah. honest. And the tattoo, the first tattoo that I really remember getting, getting from somebody else was at a venue in my hometown. They were doing sh- like tattoos at the show. And I got my a tattoo on the inside of my lip with my friend. We got like really impulsive matching tattoos. And at a show? At a show, which is so, it sounds fake, right? It sounds like, um, I, I always think about that Freaks and Geeks episode where Daniel tries to go punk and he gets his nose pierced at the punk show, <laughs> but he freaks out. It was very that, I think, <laughs> except I didn't freak out. Um, but yeah, that, so that was a really funny experience. And then my first shop experiences, I'm trying to think. 
I want to say East River Tattoo, a friend of mine, Charles Chatov, had started tattooing. He was tattooing in the like anarchy warehouse that I went to ta- on to tattoo out of briefly. So he was kind of like my tattoo forefather in that sense mm. out of this one particular space that a lot of people have started tattooing out of. And so then I went and got tattooed by him at, at this shop that he got into. I ended up getting a couple of tattoos at Save by sort of like trading artwork or like trading work for the artists. And the reason I ended up getting hired at Three Kings Tattoo was actually because I was working. This is so funny. I So I was working at a restaurant that was like a vegan sandwich place. And mm-hmm. the owners were longtime clients of the shop there. So I would always be delivering lunch to the tattooers there on my bike. And I was also doing my little tattoos in my little house. And they were like, oh, the tattoo shop needs somebody to screen print some posters for them in trade for getting a tattoo. And I went there and I showed them. I had been printing a lot of show posters at the time for all of these DIY shows. So I went and showed them all of the posters that I had made. And then I ended up drawing. Honestly, I still have the poster somewhere. It was this really gross Friday the 13th, like zombie theme poster and printing it for them. And I got tattooed by the owner. And I remember being like, yeah, I would really like to learn how to tattoo. And he fully clocked me, I think, and could tell that I was already doing tattoos <laughs> out of my house. Because yeah. he was like, okay, yeah, you just have to be really clean. <laughs> um, but then a friend of mine ended up going in and getting tattooed by them. And I had done a tattoo on him in my house a, cu- a couple of days before. And they were like, oh, that looks new. Who did that? He was like, my friend Tamara did it. And they were like, wait, we know that person. And so then they called me and they were like, hey, we saw that tattoo that you did. And back then I thought I was in big trouble. You know, I thought they were yeah. going to be like, don't ever fucking do that again. But instead they were like, yeah, you don't really know what you're doing, but like it looks pretty good <laughs> for like not knowing what you're doing. So like, why don't you come and do your tattoos out of the sh- out of the shop? Like you can keep tattooing the same clients just by appointment and start by charging the minimum. And then we'll mm-hmm. go from there and see how it goes. So you didn't so, even have like a like an apprenticeship sort of thing. They were like, oh, you have something and we just want to like foster it kind of deal. Basically, yeah. It's really shocking that that happened. And it was so it was really hard for me when people would be like, oh, well, I know you taught yourself. Like, can you give me advice on how to do it? I was like, no, that was such a fluke. I have no idea how to replicate those conditions because I was able to get skip a lot of steps, essentially, and get into the shop that was new at the time, but really reputable and helped me get a lot of experience, a lot of clientele, just learn by observing and give me support when I need, needed it. So that was really instrumental in setting me up with a solid foundation. That's the thing, though. Like, I have such a weird relationship with, like, being self-taught. It gets frustrating for me when, like, folks just, like, jump to being self-taught instead of, like, putting in the effort to try to learn properly and then, like, actually just, like, jumping into, like, physically tattooing rather than, like, maybe even taking steps like fake skins and pig skin and fruits or, like, studying certain things or, like, building a relationship with a tattooer who will, like, you know, give you some tips in a way. And just jump to being like, this is easy. I'm just going to do this. The thing is, is like, I always say this. It was like 10 times harder for me to become the tattooer that I wanted to be teaching myself there. I was, yeah, like three years in, I was not 
at the level that I should have been. Like, and I was looking at apprentices who were coming up around the same time as me or like after who are like only like a year in. And I'm like, this looks great. And I don't, my shit does not look like this, right? Yeah, that's so true. I think that I see that all the time where you see an apprentice who's been tattooing for one year and their tattoos look incredible. And it's because they had so much structure, so much guidance, so much like corrective support and so much, so many resources. And it does make a difference in how you're able to start. Yeah, exactly. Like being around other artists, being able to bounce ideas off of each other, like watching what somebody's doing. Like sometimes it's not even like what they're telling you, but it's what you're seeing. And you're just like, oh, you're running a machine at that. Like I hadn't even thought of that or like using exactly. a curved mag versus a regular mag. And it's like, you know, all these things that would just make life so much easier. And yeah. I understand why there are folks who end up teaching themselves, like more particularly like black folks who end up teaching themselves because shop environments are still violent. They're okay. They can be, um, they can be exploitative and just like a completely like unsafe environment for black and like trans and queer folk. I'd say white queer people. Yeah. It could be like not a cool space and still violent in some ways, but like your presence there, like, and your experience there is going to be that, like, different than, like, a racialized person. Um, Again, specifically, like, Black or Indigenous folks. So I get it. Like, any times, like, a a TikToker or something, oh, God, it's, like, so much on TikTok of, like, people teaching themselves. And I'm, like... Oh, no. I'm I'm not on TikTok. (laughs) It's bad. It's so bad. I, like, find myself in the comment sections, like, hey, wear gloves. Always (laughs) Always <laughs> wear gloves. <laughs> like, do not ever touch a fresh tattoo with your bare hands. Oh, I try no. to like drop no, little no, no. hints and like give uh, tips as much as I can for like client safety. That should be a zine is anonymous people sharing the grossest, most unhygienic thing they've ever done out of ignorance. Because I remember when I first started tattooing, I thought I was so clean because I just put, you know, barriers on everything. Yeah. But... I didn't really understand cross-contamination. Cross-contamination, yeah. And I remember one time I was done tattooing and the person I started working for was like, come here, just come here. You just threw your machine right in the Vaseline, like right in the dirty Vaseline. (laughs) And now you're going to clean it and sterilize it and like viricide the shit out of this. And I was like, oh, duh. Yeah, of course. Why didn't I realize that I did that? But fortunately, you know, I had somebody to like immediately correct me. And I really hope that we'll see a wave of, you know, people who are starting to, you know, get to the point in their careers of you and I taking on apprentices, people who weren't able to get apprenticeships for the very reasons that you mentioned before, Mm -hmm. but now give somebody that opportunity to learn in a safe and supportive environment and get the skills that they need to get and have those resources. As a like racialized artist yourself, you're Latina, like, do you say you're Latina? Like... Yeah, I, I usually say I'm Mexican-American or Chicanx, but, you know, I have, like, I'm mixed. My mom's from Mexico. She's an immigrant from, from Guadalajara. My dad is a white American. So that also enabled me, gave me a lot of access to tattooing. Right, you know, yeah. I think mm-hmm. I talk about this a lot with other people who are mixed people of color who are like, yeah, I'm half white. And I know for sure that that proximity to whiteness gave me a lot of 
possibility in this tattoo field that I would not have had if I were darker skinned yeah. or more like visibly other. And I think that that's really important to point out too, because people who are dark skinned are always getting the brunt of the discrimination, the misinformation, especially about getting tattooed and the least availability to those resources. So that's an area where there is still so much work to be done. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm always like, if I'm the darkest skin person in the room, like if I'm the most racialized person in the room, that's a huge problem. That's not a diverse space. Me being like biracial, like I'm half white, half black in Canada. I feel like the experience is very different than it is in America. But similar to you, like I do feel like being mixed gave me a lot more access and like being able to walk into the room and like to work in these spaces as like a mixed person, I actually, I don't know what it is to be white. Like I'll never live a white experience, um, right. but I know what the experience is to be black and t- to be mixed. I'm either treated mixed or I'm treated black. I'm never treated as white. That access, although it was there and it's a privilege and like would for like dark skinned folks to not have that access, there was still like a lot of violence. Like there was still a lot of anti-blackness that I had to experience that had to, you know, for the most part, bite my tongue. It was like this weird, like white people trying to like be cool and like be down but there was always like undertones and there was always so much fucked up shit that was still being said but like tattooer cultures like community and like almost like family and we're in it together and like you build this bond and you're going out after work and you're hanging out and you're talking about things and you spend so much of your life together and you share this passion that like take so much from you that you build like these relationships but then those relationships are sort of weaponized in a way where like your humanity is sort of stripped or like your identities sort of start to get erased. It's like, or else you're going against the grain or going against the fam or going against the shop. Like, why would you say right, that to me? Right. I thought we were cool. Like, why would you tell me what I said was racist? You know, I'm not like that. You know me. Like, That's so true. And it really speaks to the ways that those spaces required you to leave your identity at the door and engage in a type of assimilation and erasure just to be able to be there in the first place. That was something that I found to be really true. And even early in my career, I remember feeling like, you know, people would make kind of racist Mexican jokes at me or around me. And and at the time I was like, well, at least they're kind of acknowledging my culture. (laughs) And (laughs) but you know what I mean? Or you're like, oh, okay, like this, like there's so much about myself that I feel like I can't talk about or make visible or bring into the space. And so when you're in that really shrunken and invisibilized place, you're you're like, I guess I'll take it. Like, it almost feels like you're acknowledging me. So maybe that's okay. But even though it's obviously not clearly, but you know, that's, that's what that does to you. And, and I heard so much, like, I mean, there's so much racism around even the style of fine line, black and gray tattooing. And, and now I think it's become so popularized and often divorced from its origins in a problematic way of its own. But people would be like, Oh, that kind of style is ghetto. Like nobody wants that prison, that prison style. Like that's like the not... Chicano style type tattooing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think that there's a lot what? of overlap. That's like the coolest shit in tattoos. That was like shit that inspired <laughs> me. The hell. And well, also and there's, prison and tattoos there's so can much be dope. Overlap, like. Yeah, of course, of course. And there's so much, like, there's so much innovation. There's so much, like, origin of the style, like, that has to be honored and acknowledged. But then there's also overlap between black and brown communities where you're like, 
there's so much racism wrapped up in why the style is treated or has historically been treated the way that it is. And now it has exploded and been applied to all different kinds of images and being done worldwide. But that's something that I feel extremely passionate about is always connecting it with the origin, always connecting it with the disproportionate incarceration of black and brown people and it being something really beautiful that was born out of these conditions. Mm -hmm. To me, that's a requirement of working in that style is to talk about that. We'll be right back after this short break. So what does trauma-informed tattooing mean for you? Yeah, I was really looking forward to talking about that with you in particular because that language and that naming isn't one that I feel very attached to. Mm. And I think for anyone who's, you know, read my book or like taken any workshops with me, I really try to talk about that in that space. It feels important to still use it because it's part of a lineage, you know, like trauma-informed practices are something that's previously established and came before me like trying to apply that language to tattooing. So it feels important to name those connections. But I think that the terminology has become pretty limiting in what it does. And so when I see people saying trauma-informed, I'm always like, okay, what does that mean to you? Like, how did you learn that? What What is shaping your definition of it? And what does your practices look like? Because it's become in my opinion, akin to sort of safe space labeling where you can just say the thing and not have to explain what the thing Mm -hmm. means and not have to be sort of responsive or self-critical or flexible in how you're applying it. So I guess to try to answer the question, I always say, I try to say trauma-informed and justice-centered tattooing. Mm -hmm. I really like the idea of being justice-centered, which is a term that I learned from this woman, Vicki Reynolds, who lives in Canada. But To me, that's sort of the most important part is not that you're solely addressing people's individual emotional states or vulnerabilities, but that you're looking at the larger systems that are traumatizing people to begin with. And Mm -hmm. that's the larger context that you're creating your practices within. Yeah, I don't believe in safe spaces. They don't exist. What I believe in is an accountable spaces, which means like I cannot make promises that you won't experience harm in, in a space that I'm in or that that you're in in the shop, but there is an intentionality with how we move in the space and there is an openness and willingness to like be corrected or be informed or to check ourselves even, right? Definitely. For me, trauma-informed, I've done work around um, child welfare abolition and not even child welfare, family surveillance abolition. So um, child protective services, quotations. And so that's like the work I've done for, since I was like late teens and, and up until now. So the idea of like trauma-informed practice is like not new to me in that right. sense. So bringing these sort of ideas and principles into my tattooing, but I also bring in like a like as a student of abolition, I bring in those principles, right, of being transformative right. and, and like fostering space for healing and learning, right, and not acting like fucking cops when people do something wrong, right? And so like... At the bare bones of like with the client front facing trauma informed, 
it's just like recognizing the lived experience of an individual and like how they might may occupy space, how they might speak or like how they might hear, how they might communicate their relationship to their body or their bodily autonomy. Some folks come in having had a lived experience where they didn't have much bodily autonomy and use tattooing as a reclamation um, or who have faced like violence, whether it be like sexual, physical, emotional violence and Tattooing could be intimidating. It could all, it's, I wouldn't say violent in and of itself, but it's aggressive, right? There's pain associated. There's a process. And I want to, I say historically, but just like in like the more contemporary context, like Mm -hmm. uninviting. And so like things like front facing me asking permission anytime I, I touch a client, anytime I'm touching a client and I get like, thanked so much for that and but they go like yeah yeah you you can thank you nobody's ever asked asked me that before and I'm like it's just a bare minimum it's literally yeah a bare minimum you know so I heard that a lot because the very first trauma informed trauma aware resources that I created were a pamphlet a pamphlet version that was co-created with the women's prison association in New York Because we did an event where we tattooed some of their clients and a number of them had had tattoos that had been applied like sort of within the context of being trafficked or being abused, whether it was like an abuser's name. And so it was a place, a space where that was really visible, like that tattooing had been a form of abuse for them before. And so it felt really important to all get on the same page that day about like, how are we going to try to make sure that this is empowering and that they know that they have agency and that this is a tattoo of their choosing to override that experience with. And so I wrote like these very basic steps. I produced it as a pamphlet and we had some in, and I just intended it for tattoo artists and I put them in the lobby of the shop just to have some up front. And I had so many clients that would come back and be like, wow, I was reading this pamphlet and I didn't realize that I could, expect these things or that these were things that I could have in a tattoo experience. And simultaneously, I was hearing tattoo artists that were reading it be like, well, yeah, duh, this is bare minimum. Like, of course, this stuff is just common sense. And so I was seeing this huge, this huge gap where I was like, well, you're saying this is common sense, like, duh. And clients are all saying they didn't even know that they could have these kinds of things because they're not getting them. So how do we close that gap? Because there's a huge distance that needs to be addressed. The thing that consistently frustrates me is how enormous and how ongoing of a problem it is that people are having really harmful tattooing experiences because I hear about it every single time I tattoo somebody. And I'm sure you do too. And it's not just old school men. It's new people too. 100%. It's, It's new people too. And so That's the wall that I feel like I run into, like emotionally and mentally. I feel really tired and I feel like, what more could I give? (laughs) That's how I've been feeling lately. Like, what more could I give? I had an interview with a journalist last week and I literally broke down sobbing with a fucking journalist. It was a black woman and it was about black folks and tattooing. And I am so fucking tired of the conversation. And then the questions were just so activating because... I'm like, nothing's changing. Nothing's getting done. There was a brief stint of a moment where everybody pretended to care. And we're not actually absorbing the information and the education that was being put out there. They were just applying it on this most shallow end, but not actually 
acknowledging it as a as a fucking core principle, as a sense of morality, right? And it's frustrating because for me, having the shop, so a thing about a little information about the shop, I don't, me and my business partner, we don't make money from the shop. So the labor of the artist does not go into our pockets. We make money from tattooing. So we're both full-time tattooers. The booth rental, how we have it set up is at the very low minimum that we can in Toronto being one of the most expensive cities in the world, right? Even though it's like the lowest rate, I still acknowledge that it's expensive, right? But we give like financial options of like part-time and full-time. And then their clients, and they get to choose. Most of my artists are junior artists, Black, um, who came from tumultuous apprenticeships or teaching themselves. So we're using this space for them to learn, to grow as an artist, to find themselves. A lot of their experiences have been entering the space and then like having experienced like trauma from their experiences. So like the first few months is them just like really unpacking what they had gone through and just like coming right. in, like regrounding themselves. And then like, okay, I got to figure out like my tattoo journey. Right. And so like financially, most of the financial responsibility falls on me and my business partner. And that was something we decided to do. It's difficult and yeah. it's taxing, but that's what we wanted. And we do a lot of like try to do as, as much community work and community centered work, a lot of educating amongst ourselves and um, educating of our clients and all of our clients most of the time are marginalized. So they're poor, they're mad, they're disabled, they're black, they're brown, um, they're queer, they're trans. Like that's the communities that we serve the most. If we understand the world and how capitalism functions, these are the folks who are like most financially precarious. So we take on this responsibility to service like precarious folks and doing maybe tattoos that like don't necessarily speak to us all the time because they get to have this walk-in studio, this walk-in shop, which they could just come in and be like, I want an infinity symbol. And we're like, okay. And like, can get it done by somebody that looks like them or has a shared experience and the experience will feel good for them where that doesn't happen anywhere else. But that immense responsibility to move in those ways, but it's not sustainable, right? It's not sustainable as, from a, as a business model, unfortunately, within capitalism. That's its own social work. That's its own community work. And it feels so complicated by having to have a business and run a financial structure and let alone a social structure within that and a culture of employment that is sustainable and healthy. And, and there's just so many moving parts to it. Yeah. We're talking about trauma-informed care and practice to the clients. We're struggling too. You know, we're having hard times figuring out the boundaries within how to support folks, right. Or provide a service is what we're doing. Yeah. Or like what your baseline needs are that have to be met to be able to be in that position. And you know, I another thing that I really hope will be in for 2023 is rethinking financialized shop structures because I see so many people who are like, oh, why why on earth would I want to work in a shop? You know, they just take 40%. And I'm like, honestly, I miss that. Like, I miss not having the responsibility of calling a plumber, getting the gate repaired, having to pay for those things, oh, having yeah. to, like, having me be the person who has to pay the rent if, like, people are out of town of having to order the supplies of not having like an assistant to be helping me and like supporting you in those ways on the fly. Like I miss those things and those things felt worthwhile to pay for to me, you know? And, and so I think a lot about I shops or spaces that collective spaces that get organized in these sort of like 
loose ways and flower world is loose like we're very loose okay and (laughs) somehow magically functions pretty well but I think a lot about shops that get formed around like a shared political goal or shared identities and shared experiences and how we need the infrastructure that's going to help those things thrive and work the way we want them to. Because if we have all of these lofty ideals, but we're precarious financially, you know, that's its own type of trauma that's going to make it really hard to show up. In the same way that like if you haven't, if you didn't sleep all night and you try to do a tattoo, you're not bringing your best self to that work. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot about how can we enable ourselves or set ourselves up for success to be able to bring our best selves to that work. We won't always, of course, such as the mm-hmm. nature of being people and holding yeah. grace for ourselves and each other in that. But even in that in that instance, like, okay, how can I build a structure and build a safety net and build a support system that's going to help me take a mental health day if I need to not show up for work that day and not have to bear the financial repercussions of that? And so I really hope that we can, I don't know, just try new ways of financial support of structuring shops of sharing expenses like because it's it's so not easy but i think there's things to be taken from traditional shop shop structures not for-profit models but things that will build a safety net it was interesting one of the questions that were asked with the journalist last week was do you think that um tattooing could become a safer environment if there was like a larger organization like an overwatch and i was like absolutely the fuck not because let me fucking tell you oh thank you for saying this yeah it's like absolutely not because who's going to be the head of this organization and let's be real the people that are going to experience the most consequences for whatever this the rules and structure of like defining what how a shop structure should be are going to be folks who are more progressive, are going to be more progressive spaces, you know, and, and then still you're, we're acting as though people believe victims, right? About, <laughs> right. Like, I mean, yeah, not even getting into how the, the arc of transformative justice and abolition and how those things have been assimilated. But yeah, you're so right. I mean, that's why when I, as far as I know, I mean, I would love to know if there are others out there. I think I do teach one of the only sort of trauma-informed workshops for tattooers specifically. I know one person, Jen Brockman, who teaches, who's from the University of Kansas, who teaches trauma-informed body modification. Mm-hmm. But that's why I don't offer like a certificate or like a sticker mm-hmm. that you can put in your window or like any kind of credential as a result of doing that because I'm like, that's not what it is. It's not a guarantee. It's not a promise. Because they could just use that as an accolade instead of like an actual practice, right? They could just say they did this thing. Yeah. And you're responsible for yourself. You're responsible for your own behavior. I'm not responsible for how you put those things into practice or how you misinterpret them or how you choose to proliferate them. Like I, I hope that people take what I can offer and build on it and make it better. Like I have things to learn that I'm learning all the time. That's why I revise it always because I'm always learning new things and trying to shift my perspective and grow it. But just putting, I don't know, a sticker on the door or something in the bio to me is closing yourself off from that continual growth. You, you're saying a lot of things and I, and I feel like I can gauge like where you're at sort of emotionally <laughs> <laughs> with it, but I'd like, to, I'd like to hear it in like a real way. Yeah. I feel really tired. I feel like when it comes to tattooing as a practice as like a weekly practice, I'm able to do it now and still enjoy it because 
I pretty much only work with clients that I know I enjoy working with. Mm. And that has made a huge world of difference is to build those relationships with time and just know like what we're both getting into, like know that we enjoy spending time together, know that we can share a space comfortably, know what the process is going to be like, and that we can communicate easily and freely. That I think has been the number one comfort in my tattoo life. But when it comes to the other things, I mean, I feel like I'm always thinking so enormously and I'm always trying to scale it down in ways that are more manageable. Like my work focuses on tattooing and the prison industrial complex. And I've been doing oral, I've been doing oral history work around that for the last couple of years. And that is an intersection that's so unseen by the majority of the tattoo world. And that's something that I feel really fatigued by is I'm like, okay, you're not understanding that people have the experience of having to take their shirt off in front of a jury while a police officer tells the jury what he thinks all of these tattoos mean and why this person should go to prison. You're not Mm -hmm. understanding that people are being sent to solitary confinement because officers are deciding an old tattoo is new and they just want to punish somebody. Like you're not understanding like there's so much at stake in how tattoos function on the body, in the world, under these systems of oppression. And it's so unseen. And it really blows my mind that people can just go to work and do a tattoo and never know think or think or care to know about any of these things. Yeah. And that's what I feel, I think, most exhausted by as I'm like, there's all these things over here and you haven't even taken the first small step to think about what tattooing does for people in their bodies. I mean, let alone like the trans, anti-trans legislation, anti-LGBTQ legislations that are going on. I don't know if it's happening in Canada, but in the U.S., it's incredibly violent. It's happening really quickly. There is a huge rise in hate crimes. Like for somebody, a trans person to be able to access tattooing in a way that makes them feel gender affirmed is like the stakes couldn't be higher, in my opinion. And so for people to just not care to take on the responsibility of applying a tattoo in a humane way, like baseline humane, I'm just like, I don't know what more I can do for you. I don't know what to tell you. And I'm like, I'm like, I made a pamphlet. I wrote a book. There's an <laughs> online workshop. The shit is all free. It's free. I think you had it's a Discord free. as well at some point. <laughs> there was a Discord. Like, yeah, there's like, it's, I write a weekly newsletter. Like the shit is all free you can access it for free like price is not a barrier and and sometimes I think the thing that makes me most exhausted is that I'll get people in my inbox being like basically trying to bring me into their community conflicts mm-hmm. um yeah, and I I know I'm sure you know about this and I'm like okay I actually like wrote a whole chapter about your exact question in this book or like you're trying to make a thing that like me and other people have already made and you can make your own version of it. That's great. But you seem to be totally unfamiliar with what I do and have been doing for some time. And that's what makes me most frustrated is I'm like, just take some time to avail yourself of these resources that are already here before you come to me wanting free advice because there is so much out there. And like before making the things that I made, you know, it's like, do you know how many books I had to read to write my book? All I tried to do was synthesize it in a way that was made tattooers feel like it was for them. Right. Like, and I don't know what more I could do <laughs> is how I feel. <laughs> yeah. Even going back to what you said about like how tattoos consist, can exist on certain bodies. You know, when people ask the question, do you think that like tattoos are becoming like more 
like normalized. Like now people could like get tattoos and not be judged and get a job. I'm like, yeah, for some people, for some people, it could be as a co- seen as a collection of art. But for other bodies, it could be bodies are being criminalized and hyper surveilled yes. for having yes. tattoos, right? Black bodies, dark skinned black bodies that have visible tattoos who walk walk down the street are going to be criminalized, are going to be villainized for the sort of uh, art that they're adorning, right? Like it is yeah. never going to be as accessible or as widely accepted for everyone, right? That's my main criticism of this like so-called ignorant style of tattooing is that that's my biggest criticism too. interpret that so differently based on what body it's on. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. White bodies have a, so much more leeway in yes. the, quali- the quality of tattoos that they can wear and how they're read like um, along class lines or like criminalized that some people just don't have the, the privilege of. And then what is ignorant style, right? Like, do you see hood tattoos as like ignorant style or is it just badly done tattoos in somebody's kitchen? And like very rarely would somebody subcategorize that as another art form, but would actually just like degradate that sort of art form as well. And it also goes back to a conversation where I was having with some uh, some other folks where it's like some marginalized communities do not have access to art in the same ways, does not absorb art in the same ways and what's considered so-called good art, right? Have never had the ability to walk into a reputable shop and like see what like a a quote unquote good tattoo can and should look like, right? Like some folks just don't have the access for that. And so like, you know, for, for, for myself, even when I have folks who are come from the hood or like black folks who like come and get tattooed by me, they're like, I want it to look like this. And they show me a tattoo off Google and I'm like, not a good tattoo, but you know, and I give them a, a good solid piece of art and they're like, I didn't know tattoos can look like that. I didn't know that like, this is like now my favorite tattoo, like in, in the process, I'm educating them in the process. Like, this is why we can't do this. So this is why this design doesn't work or why this is, uh, and then they're going, oh, that's why my tattoo looks like that right now. I'm like, yes, because they are mm. compacting a bunch of tiny detail into a small space and using a larger needle and they're not accounting for, or they're overworking the skin and now skin is being keloided. Like how many clients, black clients have you worked with, with keloided tattoos. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. And then then they think that they can't get tattoos and that that's just a reaction to a tattoo in general. And that's so harmful. It's so true that like the voices that ring loudest in terms of making taste or assigning value to certain styles are, you know, the ones that are like culturally dominant. And so, cause Mm. I taught, I taught tattoo drawing at Rikers Island for a couple of years. And so we like, we like looked at a lot of tattoos. We talked about, talked about tattoos so much and looked at all different styles. And so many of my students, like, you know, the vast majority of whom, I mean, pretty much 99.9% of them were black and brown people would look at like traditional Americana. And they were like, this drawing is busted. Like this girl's face is so ugly. <laughs> yeah. Why would anyone get this tattooed? And I was like, you're not wrong. Like this is not a good drawing by like certain standards, right? If you're looking, if you're looking at like proportion or like accuracy to re- reality, then yeah, it's not a good drawing. <laughs> but I thought it was so funny because I was like, the tattoo world values this style like so unquestioningly. Like, and I on love- a pedestal. Just like, yeah. And I love people being like, actually, it's just ugly. <laughs> <laughs> What inspired you to write a book? How was that experience just in in general, like writing a piece of literature? So I started writing the book in 2019 
And it was just fully like a bunch of post-its on my wall. And I was just seeing all of these connections that Mm -hmm. I thought, all these dots that I thought needed to be connected and all of these things that were recurring themes over and over. And I think what really set it off was that I had trained on like an anti-violence crisis hotline. And the training was so thorough and so incredible. And the kinds of things that people were calling in about were just the same things that people talk about when they get tattooed. And so it sort of was a light bulb moment where I was like, oh, right. And one of the people that I that was running the training, I had said something and and they were like, oh, I really liked what you said about seeing tattooing as a type of social work. And I was like, mm. whoa, is that is that what I said? I didn't really realize I was thinking of it that way, but that feels really true. And I was just seeing so many parallels in the work I was doing outside of tattooing in terms of, you know, more social justice work, um, organizing work and the learning that I was doing in those spaces. So I was like, well, maybe this is just me or like maybe it's just because of like the identities that I hold, like this is just showing up more in the work. And I sent out these surveys about how trauma was showing up in other people's tattooing. And I realized it was actually just so universal, which was what I suspected, but I mean, and certainly there's differences to, it's to different varying degrees, but every tattooer, it touches all of tattooing, um, whether it's, you know, you're, you're doing a memorial tattoo for somebody or, you know, you're doing like a someone's name or what have you, like it is in all of tattooing. And so, and so that was this, the kind of like thesis that I wanted to put forth was like, this is inherently a part of tattooing. So like, how do we look at that? How do we address it? How do we support ourselves in providing this as a service? Like what's the toll that it's taking on us emotionally, mm-hmm. psychically, physically? And in retrospect, I think the book tried to do so much. Like I was trying to connect like somatics and the ways that like stress can contribute to inflammation in the body and like chronic tattooing pain. And like, I wrote a whole chapter on like transformative justice and accountability in shops. Like I wrote a chapter on de-escalation and like, you know, what to do in like a moment of crisis. And I'm, I don't know, I'm glad that I wrote those sections, but it was like, Maybe just too much. I'm like, I don't even know if people even read these parts or if they're even useful to people anymore. And but, why wouldn't it be useful to people? I mean, oh, I guess because they don't care anymore. Yeah, I don't know. I have to reread it and be like, is this even still good? <laughs> but, but at the time, it was very much like no one is – I'm writing this book that feels really important and urgent to me, but no one's going to care was fully the idea that I had. And my friend Zach Scheinbaum had – offered to publish it, which was great. And he was like, yeah, maybe we can start with like a hundred copies. And I was like, yeah, let's start with a hundred copies. Like maybe we'll sell a hundred. No one's going to care was fully what I had believed. And then the pandemic happened and I used that first couple of months to really finish the book, finish the writing. And then the George Floyd uprising started and that totally shifted the political environment that the book then came out into So people were newly a lot more receptive. And I think it wouldn't have been that way if it had come out at any other time. Like the Black Square moment in 2020 has been like traumatizing for like so many like black and brown folks, particularly like black folks, because of like the apathy that has just come from it now. Where like it was so important. There was like a shift and people were caring. And like, like even that's how I heard about you was because people were just like resharing and, you know, doing all these things. I now feel like it's been like radio silent. Like we don't hear about any of these things anymore. Yeah. And I 
I tried in the ways that I could to really like step into that window of opportunity. And I think if I can like say anything about myself, it's like that I do have hopefully some foresight because I was already like, okay, we're going to experience massive burnout. We can't work right now. Everyone's hurting financially. No one, like it's going to be so unsustainable when we go back to work. Like how can we try to preempt that? How can we try to think like not right now, but what's going to happen after this? And I didn't preempt this lack of care. And Mm. I, I think the most revealing thing that I learned during that summer is just the ways that white supremacy is like, it's like, you know, how it's water always finds, finds a level. It's like all, all rivers feed into this ocean of white supremacy. And that's like something that just consistently, consistently, consistently is going to be in the background of like whatever you're trying to work against. You're working against something so much larger. Like you're working against this institution of white supremacist patriarchy, like capitalism, capitalism, right? Like disaster capitalism. And, and so I think like what I also was noticing was just the ways that, you know, language becomes co-opted so rapidly. Language is something I try to be incredibly mm-hmm. intentional about. I think so, so deeply about the words that I'm using, how they're being used, what I'm naming something. And I'm so glad that I called my book Tattooing as Liberation Work and not anything about trauma-informed something or other. Because at the end of the day, that is what we're trying to work towards. At least I hope that we're trying to work towards it. I, a lot of people are. And so it's not about just the tattoos. It's about what that's moving us closer to or what mm-hmm. that's what that's strengthening us in, in my opinion. And so I am trying to write another book. I don't know when it'll be done, but I think with my first book, I really tried to do my best to make it for everyone and anyone at any level of political knowledge and experience. And so there were chapters that were really hard to write because it was like, I don't know, LGBTQIA 101, like, like what is transgender? And I was like, this is something that somebody can read in the privacy of their own home if they're too afraid to ask the question or they feel foolish admitting that they don't know. But in the process of that, I think I had to dial down some of my own political ideologies because I'm just like an anarchist at the end of the day. And that's what (laughs) is at the backbone of how I'm considering these subjects. So, you know, I'm like a PIC abolitionist. I'm an anarchist. I like believe in harm reduction. I have all these principles and I really want to be able to write something that talks about some of the same topics, but is more within my voice and my beliefs and my value system. And my sort of last question, do you feel as though the industry has changed on a a larger scale? I do think so. I think there are starting to be some consequences for people's bad behavior, not maybe not directly towards them, but people are starting to a realize that they don't have to deal with bad behavior. And there also are so many more tattoo artists that they're like, and I have another choice. Like you're not the only guy in my city. And so I think that there are slowly starting to be some like economic repercussions, hopefully some like slow, I don't know, glacial (laughs) pace shifts away when it comes to clientele and how they're spending their money, how they're diverting their energies. I do think that like among a larger labor rights movement globally, tattooers are starting to realize that they have rights as workers which is really important. 
and are thinking more about like, okay, if I'm giving you 50%, what are you doing for me? Mm. <laughs> what? And so, yeah, I think those things are happening slowly. I do think clients and t- tattooers who are developing more language around things for better and for worse, right? Because, you know, whatever, I went to art school. So sometimes I wouldn't realize some of the language I was using around like formal art conversations weren't ones that were accessible to everybody. So I'd be like, oh, so so for the composition of your tattoo and somebody would be like, uh, like, what's a composition? Yeah. So it's actually, I think, really helpful for that exchange for people to to understand what you mean when you say when you're saying tone or to have an example. And those are things that we should be able to be responsive towards, too. Like, I think that there is a lot of dissolving of the mystery and the the obscurity around the tattoo process, which I think is really helpful. I think it's helpful for people to know for an informed consent reasons what they're getting into when they're getting a tattoo, but also to know what to ask for and to ask and to express their own needs and their own desires as clients. Those are a few observations that I had, but I'm like, I don't know. There's plenty of abusers out here still abusing and still getting a lot of accolades. There's still so few machine builders that are trans people and people of color. Like there's some areas of the industry that are just feel impenetrable. Once in a while, I'll get a a message from like some tattooer who's like a dad in like Arkansas and he'll be like you know I listened to this podcast and you're like I learned so much from what you said and I like never really thought about it that way and I do really appreciate getting those kinds of messages because that's what I hope I don't know I don't think of myself as a very spicy person I think of myself as a very principled person but I'm also really open to talking to people and being like cool like how did you learn that like what does anyone in your life think differently than you like have you ever thought about it this way instead like and that's through tattooing. That's through oral history work. I'm not really trying to like shout at anyone, but I hope that people want to listen because I want to listen. I love listening. Well, thank you so much for your time. I know this was a long one. No, thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Is there anything that you wanted to plug in your Instagram, anything's upcoming projects, things projects that are important to you that you'd like folks to know about? Um, I think right now I'm in, in this space, maybe just my newsletter. I have like a, a Substack that's just my first and last name dot substack.com. And I write it pretty much weekly. It's kind of a tattoo advice column. So you can write in with questions and I tie people's questions to current events and things that are happening in the world. And I really love writing it. So if people pay to subscribe, it actually makes a huge difference in me getting to do that and do it every week. Awesome. Thank you. That's it for today's episode, folks. Go ahead and follow at the Teardown Pod on all socials. Also, make sure to leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. The podcast is hosted by me, Vegas Inc. This episode was edited and mixed by Ali Silva and was produced in collaboration with Edit Audio. Special shout out to producers Kathleen Specker and Melissa Houghton, and I'll see you at our next session.